Okay. All right, so for our first message today, we have a split sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, The Rest of Jesus. Mr. Whiteley. Thank you, Reggie. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here. I hope everyone had an enjoyable evening, whether you were here enjoying it uh, with quite a bit of us here last night or you were somewhere else. Uh, I want to start off this message by talking a little bit about it. I mean, obviously, we know why we're here. It's, it's, It's kind of a double holy day. It's the first day of unleavened bread, but it's also the weekly Sabbath. And uh, as I was discussing with Matt Steele last night, we were talking about, you know, he was bringing the sermon today and I was bringing the split sermon. And sometimes it's, you know, it's more difficult than you think uh, to speak on one of these high days. Because although you kind of are given, you know, obviously a point or direction, I guess you could say, uh, on what you should say and what you should talk about. Uh, but there's so many different messages that we've heard on this day. There's so many different things. And although it's not a day that I think we could ever in this lifetime or many lifetimes ever fully and exhaustively uh, cover, uh, sometimes it's difficult. But there was one thing that kept you know, coming back to my mind this week as I was trying to brainstorm uh, about what to talk about, and that is this theme that runs all throughout human history of humans living on this earth. And this theme is something that is entrenched in the biblical message. And this theme is the desire of humans for freedom. As we already know, there is no such thing as a shortage of, an ex- of examples of the different oppressions that we have seen throughout history. Examples of this was, you know, range from the institution of slavery to tyrannical governments to more personal examples of oppression from substance addiction, mental illness, abusive relationships, and even false religion. So here we come today. We know why we're here. Just a night ago, or a few nights ago, we came here and we, you know, whether it be here or somewhere else, we proclaimed the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We proclaimed our Passover, our Lamb, sacrificed for us, which is the core of our faith. And we understand what that entails. That Passover lamb, at the heart of it, signifies a deliverance. From the very first Passover to today, the Passover is about deliverance. For us, obviously, it's about the deliverance and the redemption from the ultimate punishment of sin, which is death, and about how we have been given a new destiny and a new hope. As you can see from the title of my message today, it is The Rest of Jesus, and it's taken from Matthew, the 11th chapter, verse 25 through 30. So let's go ahead and go there. I'm going to give us a little background information, and I have three primary points that I want us to consider today, and I think that a lot of this is linked to the ideas that are brought out in this day and in this festival that we are keeping. So, in Matthew, the 11th chapter, just to kind of give us an overview of the narrative, John's disciples, this this chapter is so packed with so many different things going on, but it starts off with John's disciples, John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist, you know, he's the one who came to prepare the way of the Lord. You know, he was prophesied himself, you know, in in the, the Old Testament, in the Scriptures. 
And what we know about John the Baptist is that he had his own followers. He had his own disciples before Jesus came on the scene. He was teaching this, you know, it seemed new at the time, but really was kind of an ancient concept. And that was the concept of repentance. The concept of, you know, make straight the, you know, the way of the Lord. The, you know, that I'm not the one to come, but someone's coming after me. And, and in the process of time, we know the story that John the Baptist, he gets arrested. Uh, and his disciples come to Jesus and they ask him a question. Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Are you the one the prophets speak about? Are you the one that we have been you know, preparing for? Or do we look for another? And just like Jesus always does, he doesn't just answer them directly. Jesus very rarely, if you read his stories, answers people directly with a yes or a no. He doesn't answer them directly, but rather indirectly by staying by saying, go tell John this. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And so Jesus, He doesn't answer them with their yes or no, but He literally says, the answer to your question can be found in the fruit in which you have seen me bear. So Jesus right here, from this point forward, in, in, in the, the book of Matthew, in chapter 11, after this, starts going around to all of these different cities in the area of Galilee. And there's almost like a link to, to him and the prophets here, because this is exactly what the prophets do. They go around, they go to, you know, obviously the people of Israel, the people of Judah, and they preach the word of God. They tell them to repent. They tell them to turn back. To God, turn back to the covenant, forsake, you know, the, the harlotry that Israel and Judah had been participating in. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing in his day to his own contemporaries. And it's interesting because Jesus' contemporaries, they don't receive his message. In fact, they seem to almost be in, intent on just rejecting any type of ministry that came their way. I mean, let's just think about it. John. John comes, Jesus says this, John comes preaching repentance in the desert and only eating locusts and wild honey. And what do they say? They say that he has a demon. He's a wild man. You shouldn't listen to him. The opposite end of the spectrum, Jesus comes, he performs miracles and feasts, and they say he is a wine-bibber and friend of sinners. And so Jesus right here gives a staggering analogy to the contemporaries of his day. Something that would have been really a punch in the gut, so to speak, to the people that he preached to. Basically, he brings out several different pagan cities, several different pagan uh, communities of history. And he basically says, look, you know these pagan, you know, these cities, these civilizations we've always used as examples of not, like, you know, not, not to be like? You know, like Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon. If they would have saw the works that I did, they would have repented. And so this is a judgment on the people of Jesus' day. This is a judgment on just how blind that the people had made themselves. And this was a staggering assessment that Jesus made of them, which would probably be one of the biggest insults that you could have made. So this brings us to Matthew, the 11th chapter. 
verse 25 through 30, the very end of the chapter, and I'm going to pick it up, and I have three points over this little section of Scripture. It says, At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good, to, good in your sight, and all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so right here, there's three points I want us to focus on from this passage. Number one, we need to avoid vain pride and submit to our need for God. Sounds cliche, sounds like something we understand. Looking at this in the context of today, vain pride. We know, I mean, we know the, the different analogies that we can use for leaven. I mean, at the core of the nature of man is a sinful and prideful individual. I mean, if we really think about it, at the, at the, you know, the, the, the very first sin that we saw hum, enter into the human realm, we saw it was, it was pride. It was exchanging uh, you know, the, the commandment of God for the desire of human. And that's exactly what we, are, we deal with. But not only do we need to exchange you know, our, you know, our pride and submit to, to, to our need for God, there are several reasons why we can say that this is only our reasonable response. First of all, let's just think about this prayer that Jesus gives here in the beginning. It reveals His mercy and grace. It reveals the mercy and grace of the Father. Jesus says that the Lord of heaven and earth is who he's talking about. Our Father is the Lord of heaven and earth. I mean, that doesn't really maybe jump out at us until we really kind of break it down and think about it. But this entire universe is under the authority of this God that we worship. He is over all things. He is the creator of all things. And we as mere humans, for Him to reveal anything to us, is an obvious example of His mercy and His grace. And it really kind of makes you feel small and humble. The fact that He would choose us to reveal anything too. But His prayer also reveals the judgment of God. Jesus reveals that God has hidden His truths from the self-proclaimed wise and given them to the humble and open-minded. Now, this, this phrase, wise and prudent, that we see here, it doesn't mean that people who are truly wise and truly prudent, they can't understand the things of God, but rather, it is kind of like one of those sarcastic expressions, like the wise and prudent. You know, the ones who think in their own minds that they're wise and prudent. Jesus is talking about the issue of pride. The issue that some of his contemporaries had in their unhealthy sense of self-understanding. And a few months ago, maybe last year at some point, I can't remember, I gave a message and it talked a little bit about this unhealthy 
uh, reliance we might have on our heritage and about how Jesus dealt with that. And we know that Matthew, the third chapter, verse 7 through 10, I think he'll put it up on the screen. Uh, but Jesus is, you know, not Jesus, but John the Baptist is dealing with people coming to him and basically saying that, you know, you know, we are the children of Abraham. What need do we need to, you know, do these things? God needs us. Matthew, the third chapter, verse 7 through 10, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, this is John the Baptist, coming to him, he said, Brother of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And right here we see a little picture of Jesus' day. This, this idea that basically, you know, we are uh, the chosen people. We have Abraham as our father. This, self, this reliance on, you know, well, you know, I'm a part of this, you know, this religious entity. You know, all of the prophets, all of the different prophecies point to us. God kind of needs us. What's interesting is, is that this is actually, when Jesus is talking to the Jews of his day, he's actually using Jewish wisdom tradition of the day to correct that idea, to correct that view, which basically, it's not a new concept, it's an old concept, the teaching that basically we see in the book of Job, we see in Proverbs, that it's not the wise who are in their own mind wise that learn from God or understand God. It's the ones who rely on God themselves. So Jesus is taking a concept of his day and actually applying it and trying to basically show this in the face of those who are obviously trying to subvert a simple principle that most throughout history, as far as you know, when we talk about in Jesus' day, a lot of the rabbis actually taught, but a lot of the leaders of the day were not actually practicing. So the consequence of this self-sufficient attitude resulted in God passing over them, those self-proclaimed wise ones, and judgment and revealing it to who Jesus calls babes, the lowly, the ones that the world really doesn't think much of, not the ones who are just the richest, not that someone who is very wealthy can't understand the truth of God and can't be, you know, called of God, but it's not the typical ones that we think of today, you know, the, the ones who are high and mighty. And throughout history, we have seen this. We've seen a marginal part of society, and we've seen a other part of society that because of maybe their birthright, because of the family they were born in, they had an advantage, and they were higher up on the social stratosphere. You know, in this world that we live in today, I think that we can kind of see this trickle down, but in different ways. And what I am talking about is this idea of self-reliance. And we can look at it religiously. We can look at it socially. You know, as mankind started to discover things scientifically, uh, we can, you know, speaking, for example, the scientific revolution, uh, which was a time period in history uh, where human beings, by using reason, uh, came together and thought, you know what, we can observe things about the universe and we can learn truths about the universe. We don't just have to accept 
the religious traditions of the day. And may I even add, this was a good thing in a large part. Because of the scientific revolution, me and you have technology. Me and you have a world that we have, you know, that's better than it was in those days as far as, you know, the different things that we can use for efficiency, you know, the different contraptions that we can use. We have medical advancement because of this. Galileo himself, one of the scientific revolutionaries, said that I do not believe that the God who has endowed me with reason also wants me to forgo it. Many of these scientific revolutionaries did believe in God, and they did not believe that their discoveries were in opposition to religion at all. But you see, what happened was, is they started using reason. And they started using this, you know, well, wow, you know, we, we've really been endowed with a pretty powerful thing, the human mind, and we can think, and we can critically think, and we can figure things out. And they did figure things out scientifically. But eventually what happened was, is that, People said, you know what, look at this stuff that we can learn about the universe by using reason. What if we did that same thing and we applied it to the social sciences? And then you had the Enlightenment. That's what we call it. The Enlightenment period was basically saying, hey, look what they did in the scientific revolution. Look how they did it by using reason. Let's apply that to figure out how to best govern people. What's the best system of government? What's the best system, you know, what's the best economic system? And through the Enlightenment period, you have things like the United States of America being formed. Many of the Founding Fathers and many of the things that the Enlightenment thinkers thought was very good. The idea of natural right, that all human beings are equal, that you know, just because you were born in this lineage, you don't have a divine right to have full say-so. No, God does not give you the divine right to basically be a God on earth. That's just religious tradition. And so we have ideas of democracy you know, you know, basically implemented in modern nations like Western Europe and America. So there's a lot of things about the Enlightenment that was good. But unfortunately, we took it too far. We created a God out of it. The age of reason took over, and they basically started saying that, hey, look what we've been able to discover. Look at the things that we've been able to make better. We don't need God. God actually just gets in the way. The Bible gets in the way. In fact, it is the opposite of human progress. And that's what people started to do. And then, obviously, the worst of it, applying reason to actually, you know, have atrocious things take place, like the Holocaust, for example, which you could say was used as a scientific idea that, hey, we can make the world better by removing a problem that we have. And so, we can see, untamed, the idea of reason is a very dangerous thing. It basically created a god out of the human mind, out of humans ourselves. What we see is, is that human reason can only go so far. God has given this, but it, it's, it's, it's dangerous because it's going to create a world and an environment where we have this belief that we don't need God, even though God is the maker of that human reason and the one who has endowed us with those abilities. And so that's just an example of how far this self-reliance can go within human, uh, the human sphere. And in Jesus' day, I think that, you know, for them, one of the stumbling blocks for his generation, this is talking religiously, was the fact that to admit that Jesus was the Messiah would to have to be something that you would have to do, and on the flip side, also be admitting that you were wrong about some things. You didn't have it all figured out. You were incorrect. In, incorrect. And not only were you incorrect, that you can't just overly rely on your heritage. You can't just overly rely on the background or the family that you were born into. 
But even if you're the you know, recipients of Torah, even if you are the recipients of, of the covenants of God, you need a spiritual savior. And that was something that was difficult for them to bear. But I don't think that this is a Jewish problem. I think that this was a human problem. In other words, I don't think that this was a problem that people in Jesus' day, uh, Judaism of the day, that, that was you know, linked to just them. We see this throughout every different era of religious history. This idea where people believe in something and eventually they get so confident in their own belief that it results in them basically turning blind eyes to accepting any other revelation from God. The second main point I have is we need to come to Christ because he gives the eternal rest. Jesus extends a call to those who are exhausted and realize that their efforts are in vain. And this is the core of the clarion call of the prophets. God offers rest to the weary. Let's just think about this personally. What exhausts us humans more than anything? I mean, obviously, work, physical work exhausts us. Mental work exhausts us. But what, it, what about just, you know, the rat race of life? You know, we're on this human beings, this endless search for fulfillment, this endless search for security, this endless search for acceptance and happiness. And some of this is natural, but the way in which people go about it oftentimes leaves them with the realization that their problems are still unresolved. If I get this job, I will have security. If I get this degree, people will respect me. If I wear these clothes, drive this car, live in this house, people will accept me. Religiously and philosophically, it's almost the same thing. People have this endless question, this longing for, you know, what, why am I here? What is the purpose of this life? Why, you know, what, what happens when my loved ones die? Will I really ever see them again? The pain that they uh, you know, experience in this life, in this weary search for truth. And oftentimes, as we can see in the Bible, there's a lot of false hopes. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of false teachings that leads to a conclusion that doesn't bring the actual real peace of God. You know, Jeremiah 6, verse 16, just, you don't have to turn there. You can just maybe put a note down if you want to go back and look at it. The, Jeremiah says this one thing, and this is a, a, a passage that, you know, he's quoting God. He says, Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Right here, Jeremiah is quoting God as saying, Stand by the ways. Stand. You're on this path, stop. Look at it. Is this the path you should be on? And if you look at it contextually, if you look at the context of what was going on during this period of time, we see that this was judgment coming to Judah. This was judgment coming to, uh, to, to the people of God because they were hypocrites. In particular, it was the religious leaders. They were proclaiming peace. Everything's good. We're following God. It was a vain and superficial peace that they were proclaiming. They weren't really in peace. They weren't really genuinely searching after God. They were being hypocritical. And God could not stand any longer their superficial praises to Him that weren't genuine, that weren't from the heart. They instead relied on alliances, 
pagan alliances, not on God, but alliances to foreign nations and other things. Alliances with you know, safety on a human scale. But it's interesting that he says, stand. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths. Jesus right here, there's a good possibility that this was in his mind when he was thinking about what he was saying that we find here in Matthew. The ancient paths. You know, it's an interesting thing to look about what this day is all about. We talked a little bit about it last night. And we know that, you know, when we actually look at the commandment about the Sabbath, in Exodus 20 it says, it tells us that in six days he made the heavens and the earth and blessed the seventh day and made it a perpetual rest. But if you go over to Deuteronomy 5, you go over to the reiteration of those ten commandments, those ten words as they're called in the Hebrew, you find there's a different element of meaning that's provided for the Sabbath rest. And if you look at, and I'm going to quote out of the, what's called the Net Bible, the New English Translation Bible, in Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter, verse 15, it says, Recall that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there by strength and power. Recall. When he's given this restful commandment, he's telling them, Yes, I made the heavens and the earth in six days and blessed the seventh day. And it is a perpetual rest for you. But another reason is, is because I want you to recall that you were slaves in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there by strength and power. The NLT, the New Living Translation, uses the words with amazing power and mighty, mighty deeds. And we know the story which is at the core of this festival, signifies. We know the story about how we relate, and we relate back to the Passover, to that first Passover, the children of Israel, and swiping the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, and the death angel passing over them, and then being led out of Egypt. But as Matthew Steele said last night, this was just a shadow, for it pointed to the ultimate demonstration of God's amazing power and mighty deeds. That was displayed on God passing over us by the blood of the precious lamb that was on our doorpost. And just like the Sabbath rest was a root in the Israelites' deliverance, the sacrifice of Jesus that we have just proclaimed a few nights ago signifies the deliverance from the toilage and burden that we bared in our sins to the rest that Jesus gives. This rest embodies, or is embodied in Jesus' first beatitude. And one of the first things he says there in that list of beatitudes is he says, Blessed is the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, the ones who realize that they're bankrupt spiritually and bare before God. The ones that are searching for truth, genuinely. Not tradition truth, but genuine truth. And he's pointing them to the ancient paths. You know, Jesus brought a new message. But what's interesting is that new message is rooted in the old, old story that we've always heard. It's rooted and anchored in that ancient path that's been brought to us from the beginning. My last point is that we need to come learn from Christ, the true teacher. 
We need to come and learn from Christ, the true teacher. Included in this invitation is Jesus extending the invitation to take on his yoke. Now, we've heard what a yoke is. Uh, I believe Reggie gave a message about the, explaining what a yoke was and how this, you know, how they, back in the day, they you know, would yoke two animals together. Okay? But it was also a common term that was given to teachers and the restrictions that they placed on their students. Now, obviously, in these days, they didn't have cars, they didn't have motorized ways for transportation, uh, but they had animals, and they would have to use animals to do many of their tasks. Unfortunately, if you lived in the Americas during this time, the only or the largest beast of burden was the llama. So you didn't have much to, 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 you know, to work with. But in Europe, as well as the Middle East, you were able to work with stronger animals, like oxen, which we find in the biblical message. Specifically, though, what they would do is, is to train a young oxen, they would put that young oxen with an older oxen. The idea was is that the older oxen, that knows what it's doing, is stronger, a little bigger, it would train the younger oxen, because the younger oxen would have to follow and do what the older oxen was doing. But the problem was, in Jesus' day, you could liken the older oxen to some of the religious leaders. And you could look at the younger oxen as maybe some of the common people. The problem is that the older oxen wasn't bearing their brunt of the burden. But the people were doing all the work. And Jesus right here is basically saying, look, take my yoke. My yoke is easy and light. Not because Jesus is saying following after me is going to be easy. In fact, I think you could make an argument that following after Jesus and striving to live up to that perfection is harder than anything else. But because Jesus is saying, I'm going to be there with you, bearing the burden for you and with you and helping you be able to follow me. I'm giving you my spirit. So the picture is clear. Jesus is asking for the people to come to him. The true revealer of God. Not the religious leaders who do what they do out of their pride. Come to Jesus, who not only reveals the Father, but also, uh, not only reveals the Father, but also is with us constantly. And is extending an invitation to us to take on his yoke. And to enter into his rest. In the next seven days, we're going to be partaking of that unleavened bread every single day. Obviously, that's the commandment. I have a challenge for us, and this is something I wanted to save to the end. And the challenge is this. You know, Jesus gives us an interesting example of how he answers people when they ask him a question. He doesn't just tell them yes, but he points to something else. In the case of John the Baptist's disciples asking Jesus whether or not he was the one that they were looking for, he says, go tell John, the lame walk, you know, the, lame walk the lepers are cleansed, the blind see, the dead are raised, the works, the fruits that were born. My question to you is, is this, and our challenge to you and myself is this. As we leave here and we go out into the world, and we go out to our daily routine and we start interacting with people, we have to ask the question, are we bearing fruit that is showing evidence that we are in the rest of Christ? Are we bearing the fruit that we are showing that we have received 
that rest that Christ has extended to us. Interesting concept. But are we bearing the fruits? Are we living up to the unleavened standard? Obviously, we're not perfectly. But when people see, take out that strange flat cracker out of our lunchbox, and they think, what in the world is that? Think to yourself, am I walking in a way that is worthy of me observing this day? Now, I'm not saying am I perfect. I'm saying am I, am I being a good example? Am I proclaiming Christ with my actions in such a way that shows that I have accepted and received that invitation to the rest and which he offers.